Section 11 of The Secret Agent by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11, Part 1. After Chief Inspector Heat had left him, Mr. Verloc moved about the parlour. From time to time he eyed his wife through the open door. She knows all about it now, he thought to himself, with commiseration for her sorrow, and with some satisfaction as regarded himself. Mr. Verloc's soul, if lacking greatness perhaps, was capable of tender sentiments. The prospect of having to break the news to her had put him into a fever. Chief Inspector Heat had relieved him of the task. That was good, as far as it went. It remained for him now to face her grief. Mr. Verloc had never expected to have to face it on account of death, whose catastrophic character cannot be argued away by sophisticated reasoning or persuasive eloquence. Mr. Verloc never meant Stevie to perish with such abrupt violence. He did not mean him to perish at all. Stevie dead was a much greater nuisance than ever he had been when alive. Mr. Verloc had augured a favourable issue to his enterprise, basing himself not on Stevie's intelligence, which sometimes plays queer tricks with a man, but on the blind docility and on the blind devotion of the boy. Though not much of a psychologist, Mr. Verloc had gauged the depth of Stevie's fanaticism. He dared cherish the hope of Stevie walking away from the walls of the observatory, as he had been instructed to do, taking the way shown to him several times previously, and rejoining his brother-in-law, the wise and good Mr. Verloc, outside the precincts of the park. Fifteen minutes ought to have been enough for the veriest fool to deposit the engine and walk away, and the Professor had guaranteed more than fifteen minutes. But Stevie had stumbled within five minutes of being left to himself, and Mr. Verloc was shaken morally to pieces. He had foreseen everything but that. He had foreseen Stevie distracted and lost, sought for, found in some police station or provincial workhouse in the end. He had foreseen Stevie arrested, and was not afraid, because Mr. Verloc had a great opinion of Stevie's loyalty, which had been carefully indoctrinated with the necessity of silence in the course of many walks. Like a peripatetic philosopher, Mr. Verloc, strolling along the streets of London, had modified Stevie's view of the police by conversations full of subtle reasonings. Never had a sage a more attentive and admiring disciple. The submission and worship were so apparent that Mr. Verloc had come to feel something like a liking for the boy. In any case, he had not foreseen the swift bringing home of his connection. That his wife should hit upon the precaution of sewing the boy's address inside his overcoat was the last thing Mr. Verloc would have thought of. One can't think of everything. That was what she meant when she said that he need not worry if he lost Stevie during their walks. She had assured him that the boy would turn up all right. Well, he had turned up with a vengeance. "'Well, well,' muttered Mr. Verloc in his wonder. "'What did she mean by it? Spare him the trouble of keeping an anxious eye on Stevie. Most likely she had meant well. Only she ought to have told him of the precaution she had taken.' Mr. Verloc walked behind the counter of the shop. His intention was not to overwhelm his wife with bitter reproaches. Mr. Verloc felt no bitterness. The unexpected march of events had converted him to the doctrine of fatalism. 
nothing could be helped now. He said, I didn't mean any harm to come to the boy. Mrs. Verloc shuddered at the sound of her husband's voice. She did not uncover her face. The trusted secret agent of the late Baron Stott-Wartenheim looked at her for a time with a heavy, persistent, undiscerning glance. The torn evening paper was lying at her feet. It could not have told her much. Mr. Verloc felt the need of talking to his wife. "'It's that damned heat, eh?' he said. "'He upset you. He's a brute, blurting it out like this to a woman. I made myself ill thinking how to break it to you. I sat for hours in the little parlour of Cheshire Cheese thinking over the best way. You understood I never meant any harm to come to that boy.' Mr. Verloc, the secret agent, was speaking the truth. It was his marital affection that had received the greatest shock from the premature explosion. He added, "'I didn't feel particularly gay sitting there and thinking of you.' He observed another slight shudder of his wife which affected his sensibility. As she persisted in hiding her face in her hands, he thought he had better leave her alone for a while. On this delicate impulse Mr. Verloc withdrew into the parlour again, where the gas-jet purred like a contented cat. Mrs. Verloc's wifely forethought had left the cold beef on the table, with carving-knife and fork and half a loaf of bread for Mr. Verloc's supper. He noticed all these things now for the first time, and cutting himself a piece of bread and meat began to eat. His appetite did not proceed from callousness. Mr. Verloc had not eaten any breakfast that day. He had left his home fasting. Not being an energetic man, he found his resolution in nervous excitement, which seemed to hold him mainly by the throat. He could not have swallowed anything solid. Michaelis's cottage was as destitute of provisions as the cell of a prisoner. The ticket of leave apostle lived on a little milk and crusts of stale bread. Moreover, when Mr. Verloc arrived, he had already gone upstairs after his frugal meal. Absorbed in the toil and delight of literary composition, he had not even answered Mr. Verloc's shout up the little staircase, "'I am taking this young fellow home for a day or two.' And in truth Mr. Verloc did not wait for an answer, but had marched out of the cottage at once, followed by the obedient Stevie. Now that all action was over, and his fate taken out of his hands with unexpected swiftness, Mr. Verloc felt terribly empty physically. He carved the meat, cut the bread, and devoured his supper standing by the table, and now and then casting a glance towards his wife. Her prolonged immobility disturbed the comfort of his reflection. He walked again into the shop and came up very close to her. This sorrow with a veiled face made Mr. Verloc uneasy. He expected, of course, his wife to be very much upset, but he wanted her to pull herself together. He needed all her assistance and all her loyalty in these new conjectures his fatalism had already accepted. "'Can't be helped,' he said, in a tone of gloomy sympathy. "'Come, Winnie, we've got to think of tomorrow. You'll want all your wits about you after I am taken away.' He paused. Mrs. Verloc's breast heaved convulsively. This was not reassuring to Mr. Verloc, in whose view the newly created situation required from the two people most concerned in it calmness, decision, and other qualities incompatible with the mental disorder of passionate sorrow. Mr. Verloc was a humane man, 
he had come home prepared to allow every latitude to his wife's affection for her brother. Only he did not understand either the nature or the whole extent of that sentiment. And in this he was excusable, since it was impossible for him to understand it without ceasing to be himself. He was startled and disappointed, and his speech conveyed it by a certain roughness of tone. "'You might look at a fellow,' he observed, after waiting a while. As if forced through the hands covering Mrs. Verloc's face, the answer came, deadened, almost pitiful. "'I don't want to look at you as long as I live.' "'Eh? What?' Mr. Verloc was merely startled by the superficial and literal meaning of this declaration. It was obviously unreasonable, the mere cry of exaggerated grief. He threw over it the mantle of his marital indulgence. The mind of Mr. Verloc lacked profundity. Under the mistaken impression that the value of individuals consists in what they are in themselves, he could not possibly comprehend the value of Stevie in the eyes of Mrs. Verloc. She was taking it confoundedly hard, he thought to himself. It was all the fault of that damned heat. What did he want to upset the woman for? But she mustn't be allowed, for her own good, to carry on so till she got quite beside herself. "'Look here, you can't sit like this in the shop,' he said, with affected severity, in which there was some real annoyance, for urgent practical matters must be talked over if they had to sit up all night. "'Somebody might come in at any minute,' he added, and waited again. No effect was produced, and the idea of the finality of death occurred to Mr. Verloc during the pause. He changed his tone. "'Come, this won't bring him back,' he said gently, feeling ready to take her in his arms and press her to his breast, where impatience and compassion dwelt side by side. But except for a short shudder, Mrs. Verloc remained apparently unaffected by the force of that terrible truism. It was Mr. Verloc himself who was moved. He was moved in his simplicity to urge moderation by asserting the claims of his own personality. "'Do be reasonable, Winnie. What would it have been if you had lost me?' He had vaguely expected to hear her cry out. But she did not budge. She leaned back a little quieted down to a complete unreadable stillness. Mr. Verloc's heart began to beat faster with exasperation and something resembling alarm. He laid his hand on her shoulder, saying, "'Don't be a fool, Winnie.' She gave no sign. It was impossible to talk to any purpose with a woman whose face one cannot see. Mr. Verloc caught hold of his wife's wrists, but her hands seemed glued fast. She swayed forward bodily to his tug, and nearly went off the chair. Startled to feel her so helplessly limp, he was trying to put her back on the chair, when she stiffened suddenly all over, tore herself out of his hands, ran out of the shop, across the parlour and into the kitchen. This was very swift. He had just a glimpse of her face, and that much of her eyes that he knew she had not looked at him. It had all the appearance of a struggle for the possession of a chair, because Mr. Verloc instantly took his wife's place in it. Mr. Verloc did not cover his face with his hands, but a sombre thoughtfulness veiled his features. A term of imprisonment could not be avoided. He did not wish now to avoid it. A prison was a place as safe from certain unlawful vengeances as the grave, with this advantage, 
that in a prison there is room for hope. What he saw before him was a term of imprisonment, an early release, and then life abroad somewhere, such as he had contemplated already, in case of failure. Well, it was a failure, if not exactly the sort of failure he had feared. It had been so near success that he could have positively terrified Mr. Vladimir out of his ferocious scoffing, with this proof of occult efficiency. So, at least, it seemed now to Mr. Verloc. His prestige with the Embassy would have been immense if— if his wife had not had the unlucky notion of sewing on the address inside Stevie's overcoat. Mr. Verloc, who was no fool, had soon perceived the extraordinary character of the influence he had over Stevie, though he did not understand exactly its origin, the doctrine of his supreme wisdom and goodness inculcated by two anxious women. In all the eventualities he had foreseen, Mr. Verloc had calculated with correct insight on Stevie's instinctive loyalty and blind discretion. The eventuality he had not foreseen had appalled him as a humane man and a fond husband. From every other point of view it was rather advantageous. Nothing can equal the everlasting discretion of death. Mr. Verloc, sitting perplexed and frightened in the small parlour of the Cheshire Cheese, could not help acknowledging that to himself because his sensibility did not stand in the way of his judgment. Stevie's violent disintegration, however disturbing to think about, only assured the success, for of course the knocking down of a wall was not the aim of Mr. Vladimir's menaces, but the production of a moral effect. With much trouble and distress on Mr. Verloc's part, the effect might be said to have been produced. When, however, most unexpectedly, it came home to roost in Brett Street, Mr. Verloc, who had been struggling like a man in a nightmare for the preservation of his position, accepted the blow in the spirit of a convinced fatalist. The position was gone through no one's fault, really. A small, tiny fact had done it. It was like slipping on a bit of orange peel in the dark and breaking your leg. Mr. Verloc drew a weary breath. He nourished no resentment against his wife. He thought, she will have to look after the shop while they keep me locked up. And thinking also how cruelly she would miss Stevie at first, he felt greatly concerned about her health and spirits. How would she stand her solitude, absolutely alone in that house? It would not do for her to break down while he was locked up. What would become of the shop, then? The shop was an asset. Though Mr. Verloc's fatalism accepted his undoing as a secret agent, he had no mind to be utterly ruined, mostly, it must be owned, from regard for his wife. Silent, and out of his line of sight in the kitchen, she frightened him. If only she had had her mother with her! But that silly old woman! An angry dismay possessed Mr. Verloc. He must talk with his wife. He could tell her certainly that a man does get desperate under certain circumstances. But he did not go incontinently to impart to her that information. First of all, it was clear to him that this evening was no time for business. He got up to close the street door and put out the gas in the shop. Having thus assured a solitude around his hearthstone, Mr. Verloc walked into the parlour and glanced down into the kitchen. Mrs. Verloc was sitting in the place where poor Stevie usually established himself of an evening, 
with paper and pencil for the pastime of drawing these coruscations of innumerable circles suggesting chaos and eternity. Her arms were folded on the table, and her head was lying on her arms. Mr. Verloc contemplated her back and the arrangement of her hair for a time, then walked away from the kitchen door. Mrs. Verloc's philosophical, almost disdainful incuriosity, the foundation of their accord in domestic life, made it extremely difficult to get into contact with her, now this tragic necessity had arisen. Mr. Verloc felt this difficulty acutely. He turned around the table in the parlour with his usual air of a large animal in a cage. Curiosity being one of the forms of self-revelation, a systematically incurious person remains always partly mysterious. Every time he passed near the door, Mr. Verloc glanced at his wife uneasily. It was not that he was afraid of her. Mr. Verloc imagined himself loved by that woman. But she had not accustomed him to make confidences. And the confidence he had to make was of a profound psychological order. How, with his want of practice, could he tell her what he himself felt but vaguely, that there are conspiracies of fatal destiny, that a notion grows in a mind sometimes till it acquires an outward existence, an independent power of its own, and even a suggestive voice. He could not inform her that a man may be haunted by a fat, witty, clean-shaved face, till the wildest expedient to get rid of it appears a child of wisdom. On this mental reference to a first secretary of a great embassy, Mr. Verloc stopped in the doorway, and looking down into the kitchen with an angry face and clenched fists, addressed his wife. You don't know what a brute I had to deal with." He started off to make another perambulation of the table. Then, when he had come to the door again, he stopped, glaring in from the height of two steps. A silly, jeering, dangerous brute, with no more sense than, after all these years, a man like me, and I've been playing my head at that game. You didn't know. Quite right, too. What was the good of telling you that I stood the risk of having a knife stuck into me any time these seven years we've been married? I am not a chap to worry a woman that's fond of me. You had no business to know." Mr. Verloc took another turn round the parlour, fuming. "'A venomous beast,' he began again from the doorway. "'Drive me out into a ditch to starve for a joke. I could see he thought it was a damned good joke. A man like me. Look here. Some of the highest in the world got me to thank for walking on their two legs to this day. That's the man you've got married to, my girl." He perceived that his wife had sat up. Mrs. Verloc's arms remained lying stretched on the table. Mr. Verloc watched at her back, as if he could read there the effect of his words. "'There isn't a murdering plot for the last eleven years that I haven't had my finger in, at the risk of my life. There's scores of these revolutionists I've sent off, with their bombs in their blamed pockets, to get themselves caught on the frontier. The old baron knew what I was worth to his country. And here suddenly a swine comes along, an ignorant, overbearing swine." Mr. Verloc, stepping slowly down two steps, entered the kitchen, took a tumbler off the dresser, and holding it in his hand, approached the sink, without looking at his wife. It wasn't the old baron who would have had the wicked folly of getting me to call on him at eleven in the morning. There were two or three in this town that, if they had seen me going in, would have made no bones about knocking me on the head sooner or later. It was a silly, murderous trick to expose for nothing a man like me.
Mr. Verloc, turning on the tap above the sink, poured three glasses of water, one after another, down his throat, to quench the fires of his indignation. Mr. Vladimir's conduct was like a hot brand which set his internal economy in a blaze. He could not get over the disloyalty of it. This man, who would not work at the usual hard tasks which society sets to its humbler members, had exercised his secret industry with an indefatigable devotion. There was in Mr. Verloc a fund of loyalty. He had been loyal to his employers, to the cause of social stability, and to his affections too, as became apparent when, after standing the tumbler in the sink, he turned about, saying, "'If I hadn't thought of you, I would have taken the bullying brute by the throat and rammed his head into the fireplace. I'd have been more than a match for that pink-faced, smooth-shaved—' Mr. Verloc neglected to finish the sentence, as if there could be no doubt of the terminal word. For the first time in his life he was taking that incurious woman into his confidence. The singularity of the event, the force and importance of the personal feelings aroused in the course of this confession, drove Stevie's fate clean out of Mr. Verloc's mind. The boy's stuttering existence of fears and indignations, together with the violence of his end, had passed out of Mr. Verloc's mental sight for a time. For that reason, when he looked up, he was startled by the inappropriate character of his wife's stare. It was not a wild stare, and it was not inattentive, but its attention was peculiar and not satisfactory, inasmuch that it seemed concentrated upon some point beyond Mr. Verloc's person. The impression was so strong that Mr. Verloc glanced over his shoulder. There was nothing behind him, there was just the whitewashed wall. The excellent husband of Winnie Verloc saw no writing on the wall. He turned to his wife again, repeating with some emphasis, "'I would have taken him by the throat. As true as I stand here, if I hadn't thought of you then I would have half choked the life out of the brute before I let him get up. And don't you think he would have been anxious to call the police, either? He wouldn't have dared. You understand why, don't you?' He blinked at his wife knowingly. "'No,' said Mrs. Verloc in an unresonant voice, and without looking at him at all. "'What are you talking about?' A great discouragement, the result of fatigue, came upon Mr. Verloc. He had had a very full day, and his nerves had been tried to the utmost. After a month of maddening worry, ending in an unexpected catastrophe, the storm-tossed spirit of Mr. Verloc longed for repose. His career as a secret agent had come to an end in a way no one could have foreseen. Only now, perhaps he could manage to get a night's sleep at last. But looking at his wife he doubted it. She was taking it very hard, not at all like herself, he thought. He made an effort to speak. "'You'll have to pull yourself together, my girl,' he said sympathetically. What's done can't be undone." Mrs. Verloc gave a slight start, though not a muscle of her white face moved in the least. Mr. Verloc, who was not looking at her, continued ponderously. "'You go to bed now. What you want is a good cry.' This opinion had nothing to recommend it but the general consent of mankind. It is universally understood that, as if it were nothing more substantial than vapour floating in the sky, Every emotion of a woman is bound to end in a shower. And it is very probable that had Stevie died in his bed, under her despairing gaze, in her protecting arms, 
Mrs. Verloc's grief would have found relief in a flood of bitter and pure tears. Mrs. Verloc, in common with other human beings, was provided with a fund of unconscious resignation sufficient to meet the normal manifestation of human destiny. Without troubling her head about it, she was aware that it did not stand looking into very much. But the lamentable circumstances of Stevie's end, which to Mr. Verloc's mind had only an episodic character as part of a greater disaster, dried her tears at their very source. It was the effect of a white-hot iron drawn across her eyes. At the same time her heart, hardened and chilled into a lump of ice, kept her body in an inward shudder, set her features into a frozen, contemplative immobility addressed to a whitewashed wall with no writing on it. The exigencies of Mrs. Verloc's temperament, which, when stripped of its philosophical reserve, was maternal and violent, forced her to roll a series of thoughts in her motionless head. These thoughts were rather imagined than expressed. Mrs. Verloc was a woman of singularly few words, either for public or private use. With the rage and dismay of a betrayed woman, she reviewed the tenor of her life in visions concerned mostly with Stevie's difficult existence from its earliest days. It was a life of single purpose and of a noble unity of inspiration, like those rare lives that have left their mark on the thoughts and feelings of mankind. But the visions of Mrs. Verloc lacked nobility and magnificence. She saw herself putting the boy to bed by the light of a single candle, on the deserted top floor of a business house, dark under the roof and scintillating exceedingly with lights and cut glass at the level of the street like a fairy palace. That meretricious splendour was the only one to be met in Mrs. Verloc's visions. She remembered brushing the boy's hair and tying his pinafores, herself in a pinafore still. The consolations administered to a small and badly scared creature, by another creature nearly as small but not quite so badly scared. She had the vision of the blows intercepted, often with her own head, of a door held desperately shut against a man's rage, not for very long, of a poker flung once, not very far, which stilled that particular storm into the dumb and awful silence which follows a thunderclap. And all these scenes of violence came and went accompanied by the unrefined noise of deep vociferations, proceeding from a man wounded in his paternal pride, declaring himself obviously accursed, since one of his kids was a slobbering Egypt and the other one a wicked she-devil. It was of her that this had been said many years ago. Mrs. Verloc heard the words again in a ghostly fashion, and then the dreary shadow of the Belgravian mansion descended upon her shoulders. It was a crushing memory, an exhausting vision of countless breakfast trays carried up and down innumerable stairs, of endless haggling over pence, of the endless drudgery of sweeping, dusting, cleaning, from basement to attics, while the impotent mother, staggering on swollen legs, cooked in a grimy kitchen, and poor Stevie, the unconscious presiding genius of all their toil, blacked the gentleman's boots in the scullery. But this vision had a breath of a hot London summer in it, and for a central figure a young man wearing his Sunday best, with a straw hat on his dark head and a wooden pipe in his mouth. Affectionate and jolly, he was a fascinating companion for a voyage down the sparkling stream of life, only his boat was very small. 
There was room in it for a girl partner at the oar, but no accommodation for passengers. He was allowed to drift away from the threshold of the Belgravian mansion, while Winnie averted her tearful eyes. He was not a lodger. The lodger was Mr. Verloc, indolent and keeping late hours, sleepily jocular of a morning from under his bedclothes, but with gleams of infatuation in his heavy-lidded eyes, and always with some money in his pockets. There was no sparkle of any kind on the lazy stream of his life. It flowed through secret places. But his bark seemed a roomy craft, and his taciturn magnanimity accepted as a matter of course the presence of passengers. Mrs. Verloc pursued the visions of seven years' security for Stevie, loyally paid for on her part, of security growing into confidence, into a domestic feeling, stagnant and deep like a placid pool, whose guarded surface hardly shuddered on the occasional passage of Comrade Ossipon, the robust anarchist with shamelessly inviting eyes, whose glance had a corrupt clearness sufficient to enlighten any woman not absolutely imbecile. A few seconds only had elapsed since the last word had been uttered aloud in the kitchen, and Mrs. Verloc was staring already at the vision of an episode not more than a fortnight old. With eyes whose pupils were extremely dilated, she stared at the vision of her husband and poor Stevie, walking up Brett Street side by side away from the shop. It was the last scene of an existence created by Mrs. Verloc's genius, an existence foreign to all grace and charm, without beauty and almost without decency, but admirable in the continuity of feeling and tenacity of purpose. And this last vision had such plastic relief, such nearness of form, such a fidelity of suggestive detail, that it wrung from Mrs. Verloc an anguished and faint murmur, reproducing the supreme illusion of her life, an appalled murmur that died out on her blanched lips might have been father and son." Mr. Verloc stopped and raised a careworn face. "'Eh? What did you say?' he asked. Receiving no reply, he resumed his sinister tramping. Then, with a menacing flourish of a thick, fleshy fist, he burst out, "'Yes, the Embassy people. A pretty lot, ain't they? Before a week's out I'll make some of them wish themselves twenty feet underground. Eh, what? He glanced sideways with his head down. Mrs. Verloc gazed at the whitewashed wall. A blank wall, perfectly blank. A blankness to run at and dash your head against. Mrs. Verloc remained immovably seated. She kept still as the population of half the globe would keep still in astonishment and despair were the sun suddenly put out in the summer sky by the perfidy of a trusted providence. "'The Embassy,' Mr. Verloc began again, after a preliminary grimace which bared his teeth wolfishly. "'I wish I could get loose in there with a cudgel for half an hour. I would keep on hitting till there wasn't a single unbroken bone left amongst the lot. But never mind. I'll teach them yet what it means trying to throw out a man like me to rot in the streets. I've a tongue in my head.' All the world shall know what I've done for them. I am not afraid. I don't care. Everything'll come out. Every damned thing. Let them look out." In these terms did Mr. Verloc declare his thirst for revenge. It was a very appropriate revenge. 
it was in harmony with the promptings of Mr. Verloc's genius. It had also the advantage of being within the range of his powers, and of adjusting itself easily to the practice of his life, which had consisted precisely in betraying the secret and unlawful proceedings of his fellow-men. Anarchists or diplomats were all one to him. Mr. Verloc was temperamentally no respecter of persons. His scorn was equally distributed over the whole field of his operations. But as a member of a revolutionary proletariat, which he undoubtedly was, he nourished a rather inimical sentiment against social distinction. "'Nothing on earth can stop me now,' he added, and paused, looking fixedly at his wife, who was looking fixedly at a blank wall. The silence in the kitchen was prolonged, and Mr. Verloc felt disappointed. He had expected his wife to say something. But Mrs. Verloc's lips, composed in their usual form, preserved a statuesque immobility like the rest of her face. And Mr. Verloc was disappointed. Yet the occasion did not, he recognised, demand speech from her. She was a woman of very few words. For reasons involved in the very foundation of his psychology, Mr. Verloc was inclined to put his trust in any woman who had given herself to him. Therefore he trusted his wife. Their accord was perfect, but it was not precise. It was a tacit accord, congenial to Mrs. Verloc's incuriosity, and to Mr. Verloc's habits of mind which were indolent and secret. They refrained from going to the bottom of facts and motives. This reserve, expressing, in a way, their profound confidence in each other, introduced at the same time a certain element of vagueness into their intimacy. No system of conjugal relations is perfect. Mr. Verloc presumed that his wife had understood him, but he would have been glad to hear her say what she thought at the moment. It would have been a comfort. There were several reasons why this comfort was denied him. There was a physical obstacle. Mrs. Verloc had no sufficient command over her voice. She did not see any alternative between screaming and silence, and instinctively she chose the silence. Winnie Verloc was temperamentally a silent person. And there was the paralysing atrocity of the thought which occupied her. Her cheeks were blanched, her lips ashy, her immobility amazing. And she thought, without looking at Mr. Verloc, this man took the boy away to murder him. He took the boy away from his home to murder him. He took the boy away from me to murder him. Mrs. Verloc's whole being was racked by that inconclusive and maddening thought. It was in her veins, in her bones, in the roots of her hair. Mentally she assumed the biblical attitude of mourning, the covered face, the rent garments, the sound of wailing and lamentation filled her head. But her teeth were violently clenched, and her tearless eyes were hot with rage, because she was not a submissive creature. The protection she had extended over her brother had been in its origin of a fierce and indignant complexion. She had to love him with a militant love. She had battled for him, even against herself. His loss had the bitterness of defeat, with the anguish of a baffled passion. It was not an ordinary stroke of death. Moreover, it was not death that took Stevie from her. It was Mr. Verloc who took him away, 
She had seen him. She had watched him, without raising a hand, take the boy away. And she had let him go like, like a fool, a blind fool. Then, after he had murdered the boy, he came home to her. Just came home like any other man would come home to his wife. Through her set teeth, Mrs. Verloc muttered at the wall. And I thought he had caught a cold. Mr. Verloc heard these words and appropriated them. "'It was nothing,' he said moodily. "'I was upset. I was upset on your account.' Mrs. Verloc, turning her head slowly, transferred her stare from the wall to her husband's person. Mr. Verloc, with the tips of his fingers between his lips, was looking on the ground. "'Can't be helped,' he mumbled, letting his hand fall. You must pull yourself together. You'll want all your wits about you. It is you who brought the police about our ears. Never mind, I won't say anything more about it," continued Mr. Verloc magnanimously. You couldn't know. I couldn't, breathed out Mrs. Verloc. It was as if a corpse had spoken. Mr. Verloc took up the thread of his discourse. I don't blame you. I'll make them sit up. Once under lock and key it will be safe enough for me to talk, you understand. You must reckon on me being two years away from you," he continued, in a tone of sincere concern. It will be easier for you than for me. You'll have something to do, while I— Look here, Winnie, what you must do is to keep this business going for two years. You know enough for that. You've a good head on you. I'll send you word when it's time to go about trying to sell. You'll have to be extra careful. The comrades will be keeping an eye on you all the time. You'll have to be as artful as you know how, and as close as the grave. No one must find out what you are going to do. I have no mind to get a knock on the head or a stab in the back directly I am let out." Thus spoke Mr. Verloc, applying his mind with ingenuity and forethought to the problems of the future. His voice was sombre because he had a correct sentiment of the situation. Everything which he did not wish to pass had come to pass. The future had become precarious. His judgment, perhaps, had been momentarily obscured by his dread of Mr. Vladimir's truculent folly. A man somewhat over forty may be excusably thrown into considerable disorder by the prospect of losing his employment, especially if the man is a secret agent of political police, dwelling secure in the consciousness of his high value and in the esteem of high personages. He was excusable. Now the thing had ended in a crash. Mr. Verloc was cool, but he was not cheerful. A secret agent who throws his secrecy to the winds from desire of vengeance, and flaunts his achievements before the public eye, becomes the mark for desperate and bloodthirsty indignations. Without unduly exaggerating the danger, Mr. Verloc tried to bring it clearly before his wife's mind. He repeated that he had no intention to let the revolutionists do away with him. He looked straight into his wife's eyes. The enlarged pupils of the woman received his stare into their unfathomable depths. "'I am too fond of you for that,' he said, with a little nervous laugh. A faint flush coloured Mrs. Verloc's ghastly and motionless face. Having done with the visions of the past, she had not only heard— but had also understood the words uttered by her husband. 
by their extreme disaccord with her mental condition, these words produced on her a slightly suffocating effect. Mrs. Verloc's mental condition had the merit of simplicity, but it was not sound. It was governed too much by a fixed idea. Every nook and cranny of her brain was filled with the thought that this man, with whom she had lived without distaste for seven years, had taken the poor boy away from her in order to kill him, the man to whom she had grown accustomed in body and mind, the man whom she had trusted, took the boy away to kill him. In its form, in its substance, in its effect, which was universal, altering even the aspect of inanimate things, it was a thought to sit still and marvel at for ever and ever. Mrs. Verloc sat still. And across that thought—not across the kitchen—the form of Mr. Verloc went to and fro, familiarly in hat and overcoat, stamping with his boots upon her brain. He was probably talking, too, but Mrs. Verloc's thought for the most part covered the voice. Now and then, however, the voice would make itself heard. Several connected words emerged at times. Their purport was generally hopeful. On each of these occasions, Mrs. Verloc's dilated pupils, losing their far-off fixity, followed her husband's movements with the effect of black care and impenetrable attention. Well informed upon all matters relating to his secret calling, Mr. Verloc augured well for the success of his plans and combinations. He really believed that it would be, upon the whole, easy for him to escape the knife of infuriated revolutionists. He had exaggerated the strength of their fury and the length of their arm, for professional purposes, too often to have many illusions one way or the other. For to exaggerate with judgment, one must begin by measuring with nicety. He knew also how much virtue and how much infamy is forgotten in two years, two long years. His first really confidential discourse to his wife was optimistic from conviction. He also thought it good policy to display all the assurance he could muster. It would put heart into the poor woman. On his liberation, which, harmonising with the whole tenor of his life, would be secret, of course, they would vanish together without loss of time. As to covering up the tracks, he begged his wife to trust him for that. He knew how it was to be done so that the devil himself. He waved his hand. He seemed to boast. He wished only to put heart into her. It was a benevolent intention, but Mr. Verloc had the misfortune not to be in accord with his audience. The self-confident tone grew upon Mrs. Verloc's ear, which let most of the words go by. For what were words to her now? What could words do to her, for good or evil in the face of her fixed idea? Her black glance followed that man who was asserting his impunity, the man who had taken poor Stevie from home to kill him somewhere. Mrs. Verloc could not remember exactly where, but her heart began to beat very perceptibly. Mr. Verloc, in a soft and conjugal tone, was now expressing his firm belief that there were yet a good few years of quiet life before them both. He did not go into the question of means. A quiet life it must be, and, as it were, nestling in the shade, concealed among men whose flesh is grass, modest like the life of violets.
The words used by Mr. Verloc were, Lie low for a bit. And far from England, of course. It was not clear whether Mr. Verloc had in his mind Spain or South America, but at any rate somewhere abroad. This last word, falling into Mrs. Verloc's ear, produced a definite impression. This man was talking of going abroad. The impression was completely disconnected, and such is the force of mental habit that Mrs. Verloc at once and automatically asked herself, And what of Stevie? It was a sort of forgetfulness, but instantly she became aware that there was no longer any occasion for anxiety on that score. There would never be any occasion any more. The poor boy had been taken out and killed. The poor boy was dead. This shaking piece of forgetfulness stimulated Mrs. Verloc's intelligence. She began to perceive certain consequences which would have surprised Mr. Verloc. There was no need for her now to stay there, in that kitchen, in that house, with that man, since the boy was gone forever. No need whatever. And on that Mrs. Verloc rose as if raised by a spring. But neither could she see what there was to keep her in the world at all. And this inability arrested her. Mr. Verloc watched her with marital solicitude. "'You're looking more like yourself,' he said uneasily. Something peculiar in the blackness of his wife's eyes disturbed his optimism. At that precise moment Mrs. Verloc began to look upon herself as released from all earthly ties. She had her freedom. Her contract with existence, as represented by that man standing over there, was at an end. She was a free woman. Had this view become in some way perceptible to Mr. Verloc, he would have been extremely shocked. In his affairs of the heart, Mr. Verloc had always been carelessly generous, yet always with no other idea than that of being loved for himself. Upon this matter, his ethical notions being in agreement with his vanity, he was completely incorrigible. That this should be so in the case of his virtuous and legal connection he was perfectly certain. He had grown older, fatter, heavier, in the belief that he lacked no fascination for being loved for his own sake. When he saw Mrs. Verloc starting to walk out of the kitchen without a word, he was disappointed. "'Where are you going to?' he called out rather sharply. "'Upstairs?' Mrs. Verloc in the doorway turned at the voice. An instinct of prudence born of fear, the excessive fear of being approached and touched by that man, induced her to nod at him slightly, from the height of two steps, with a stir of the lips, which the conjugal optimism of Mr. Verloc took for a wan and uncertain smile. "'That's right,' he encouraged her gruffly. "'Rest and quiet's what you want. Go on. It won't be long before I am with you.' Mrs. Verloc, the free woman who had had really no idea where she was going to, obeyed the suggestion with rigid steadiness. End of section 11